Hello strangers, I'm back. Episode 56. I do apologise for there being such a delay between 55 and 56. Um, I'll explain why uh, shortly. This episode has been worth the wait though, I promise you. This is with the marvellous Azifa Lahore. Azifa is the UK's first Muslim trans drag queen and it was such a pleasure to sit down and have a cup of tea. And we had a good old natter and we discussed everything from her journey to where she is now, um, her faith, politics, about being a public figure, and the Spice Girls and everything. It's a really, really brilliant and interesting chat. And I one that I think you are all going to totally lap up and enjoy. So um, I think you're in for a bit of a treat. Um, yes, apologies in the meantime. Apologies and recommendations. Apologies first. Um, I... I've been stupidly busy. I've been stupidly busy. And as I've said before, until the podcast is uh, it's giving me a little bit more uh, of a, a nudge in the, in the bank, in the income, then it sometimes will fall by the wayside. And I've explained before why. So I'm not going to go over that. But anyway, apologies. Um, hopefully we're going to be back in the flow again now. Um, I was away in Scotland, in Edinburgh last week, uh, training actors to be teachers, um, which I've done before. Um, I've had another bout of cold, which I picked up there. I was sorting out new headshots for my acting stuff, sorting out showreel things, teaching in London, um, video, uh, video work, voice work related stuff. Just a lot of, a lot of things that I've just had to cram in and I've just been stupidly busy and just haven't had a moment to jump in and do this. So apologies. And I, hopefully I know that a lot of people have been catching up and playing catch up. Um, and that's great that it's allowed you some time to go back through the back catalogue um, and listen to some of the favourites and I can see some that are getting uh, lots of listens um, and thank you for uh, all your kind words um, yes there's, there's to say there's a lot to there's a lot to get through this week with Aziva so I'm not going to waffle on too long about what I'm up to um, there are some fun things ahead um, and um I have a new agent, which I may or may not have told you the last time. So that's exciting. And also, I um, I have a couple of projects in that are bubbling away that I'm quite intrigued and excited about. But I, I'm I'm not going to tempt fate because I know sometimes I've mentioned things and and I feel like I may have jinxed them by talking about them too enthusiastically. So I'm going to let them lie for now. And we'll come back to them. There's been a lot going on in the world. <laughs> There's been a lot going on in the world. Um, I know the last time I was talking to you about the case with Jussie Smollett. And I'm going to remain uh, neutral on this for the time being. Because until there's... Until, until, we've, until we've got some more evidence, then I'm going to leave that alone. Um... Obviously, I probably feel the same as the rest of you, and I would like to think that I hadn't had the wool pulled over my eyes, or we um, hadn't had the wool pulled over our eyes. But anyway, that remains to be seen. But I will—I'll talk on that when that kind of comes to fruition, when the uh, when when we know more, essentially. Um, then this week was—we sadly lost um, Luke Perry who I used to have in my first bedsit in London. I had lots of posters of him on the walls, shirtless. Um, a very attractive man. Um, I remember at the time he was he was hanging out with Madonna a lot. And I don't know if they dated. I don't think they actually ever dated. But I think that I had a picture of the two of them 
kissing, but it was, you know, it was done for public consumption. Um, but yes, I did find him very attractive. And then, of course, he was in the first, he was in the original Buffy film, um, which gives him brownie points. But yes, generally uh, a very attractive bloke and uh, and not that dissimilar in age. And yeah, but how very sad, really. Um, and he seemed to have been very popular in the Hollywood world um, and the network. So sad but the the big one for me really that happened on the same day was uh keith flint from the prodigy 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 jeez i can't say prodigy there we go i've just said it twice in a row um but yeah uh keith from the prodigy it's big part of my 90s really um and uh yeah sadly he uh was found dead at the beginning of this week um and i've been suffering from depression um, and anxiety for the sounds of it so terribly sad um yeah i mean i think about um the tracks that like um the one that comes to mind the first one for me that i really became aware of them was um, no good start the dance if you don't know it go to um spotify or itunes and look for prodigy no good start the dance also out of space and then there's the obvious ones like firestars from breathe which are, are great um, epic tracks but I'd say the the earlier ones were for me more interesting and part of my still party and clubbing experiences so um so terribly sad anyway um I need to get on to Azifa let's move on to that very briefly but just the recommendations are India Ari India Ari India is in the India the place and Ari is I-R-I-E um her album's called Worthy and it's her best in a few years. And if you're a fan of her, then this will keep you being a fan. If you don't know much about her, she's kind of in the vein of Jill Scott. Um, she's even got, um, I suppose, some aretherisms to her. Um, with a slightly country tinge in some songs. I don't really know how to best describe her, but it's a great album. Um, there's a song called Follow the Sun. If you don't even listen to the rest of it, it's one of the most beautiful songs i think i've ever heard follow the sun by india Ari, and the album is called worthy 100 percent, go and listen to that pause if you must and come back to me um the other one which is a bit of an obvious one and i was surprised that i'd liked more than one album by her was uh, ariana grande's album thank you next and initially if you'd said to me three years ago two years ago um, you're going to be recommending her albums on your podcast, I would have said, yeah, don't think so. I did nothing against her personally at that point. I just, her music didn't really um, push my buttons, shall we say. But her last album and now this one have both been superb pop epic moments of geniusness. So um, I can recommend that album. Um, the song, obviously, Thank You Next. I know a lot of my listeners, I'm preaching to the converted, but however, if you don't, if you haven't do um yeah thank you next is a great song and then uh bad idea which is another great track off the album go and listen to those anyway i've got lots to talk about and i will talk more about them in podcasts ahead and i promise to be more regular as they say anyway it's time to move on to the marvelous azifa lahore there we go do you want to do like a sound test or anything i like can that? see oh you can see that yeah happening. your, okay, your cool. voice is 
Yeah. You know what you're doing. Okay. Because you're trained. <laughs> well, that too, but just, yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you, Azifa, so much for inviting me in for a cup of tea and a chat. You're most welcome. <laughs> I just hope you like the Yorkshire tea. It's lovely, actually. I am enjoying a Yorkshire mm. tea, and it's quite nice and strong. The lady knows how to make tea. So. Oh, amen. Cheers. Amen. <laughs> it's, the, um, it's the British in me. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> um, so, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to the very beginning. Because mm-hmm. it's a very good place to start. Um, so, born and raised where exactly? So, I was born in Southall in West London. Yeah. Um, have you been to Southall? I have. Okay, so... You I know, come from Slough. Oh, it's God, not far, away. not far at all. Far away. No, so I was born in, you know, essentially the heart of the Asian community. Mm. Um, and when I was six months old, I was sent to Pakistan... Um, because my older brother, who at the time was three, uh, got diagnosed with autism. Right. And being from, like, an immigrant family, uh, and this was 1983, where okay. autism wasn't really known and, you know, mental health wasn't as talked about as it is now. No. I just, um, my mom and dad found it really, really difficult. And because we didn't have any extended family in the UK at the time, mm. my mom and dad needed extra help. So I was sort of sent uh, to live with my uh, maternal nan, my maternal grandmother, in Pakistan for a year. So my early, early, early um, sort of, you know, start in life happened like that. And then when I came back, I was one and a half. And by that point, the family had moved to Brixton, South London. Oh, okay. Mm. (laughs) Right, so kind of... Well, even west to south is it? West to south, as, yes. as we know, for Londoners, it's a huge, it's a huge jump actually. But yeah, so then you're in Brixton, okay? So where was so schooling? I mean, let's talk really kind of, I suppose, more about the secondary school. Where did you? Where was like? So I went to a local secondary school in uh, Oval, which was really near uh, Brixton, where I lived. Yeah, and. Um, Secondary school was really hard for me. I was going to say, how was, yeah, I mean, how, just, because for a lot of, every, all, I mean, this is nothing to do with being LGBT, but school is tough. School but... is tough. I mean, I, I found it particularly difficult just because I got bullied heavily. I got bullied for being um, effeminate, for being gay, for being batty boy, for being chitchy man, like everything. So I obviously living uh, in Brixton and, you know, Oval and and Stockwell, Lambeth obviously has a massive Afro-Caribbean community. Um, And I was the only Asian kid in my year. Um, And... Right, it, that's right. You know, and actually, like, it was 90, I'd say 95% Afro-Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you had sort of 2% everything uh, else. And then the last three were just British white. Sure. So I was very much in the minority, but got very heavily bullied for, you know, essentially being feminine and... Um, you know, being called gay, which I, I didn't know what the term was. was. Yeah. So how did you... How did you, what was your coping mechanism at that point? Did you have one or were you just kind of suffering under it and just going home and hiding your head in the bed? And Yeah, I mean, I couldn't sort of tell my mum and dad about it because they would have asked what the bullying was about. And I wasn't out at that point, so I didn't tell anyone at home. And uh, the teachers obviously knew what was going on. 
but they were very limited in what they could do because this was the day of Section 28. And, Indeed. you know, Section 28, for those people that don't yeah. know, was, you know, a clause brought in by the Margaret Thatcher government of the yeah. late 80s, which prohibited... Um, you know, the teaching of, of homosexuality, if you like, within like, the curriculum. They say promotion of, which is promoting it, like we were given out leaflets. Exactly, become yeah. gay, become LGBT. <laughs> and um, so, you know, my head teacher was very... So I went to a Church of England school and my head teacher was, you know, a man in his 50s, I'd say, mm. super homophobic, didn't really want to acknowledge the situation. Right. So my form tutor basically just kept me in at break times, uh, lunch times. Um, and in order to sort of stay away from the bullying, I would, um, at the end of the school day, I would stay in the school library until everyone had gone. So everyone would go at 3.30 and I would stay till about 5 when no one was at school right, right, right. and then go home because the bullying was really like it would happen outside it would happen in the school playground it would happen you know between lessons where you know going from one classroom to another i would get i'd be used as a punch bag within the corridors it was really really bad yeah and on my last day of my gcse exams you know I mean, it's really relevant because, you know, there's so many stabbings that are happening now in, in, in London and the UK. But there were huge rumours going around that, you know, I was going to get stabbed on my last day. And, you know, the, the gangs knew for, around the mm. school, knew that there was this batty boy mm. in, 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 in this school. Um, and there were loads of rumours. So my form tutor basically kept me at the end of my... Um, uh, exam and drove me to my road essentially she right. didn't have to but you know it was something that obviously she felt quite strongly about and uh, I guess my safety was quite a, a big thing um, so that was sort of my secondary school time wow. yeah it was very I mean looking back on it now it was very traumatic and it seems such a long time ago sure but um, I mean do you feel that happened. you you do you I mean, obviously you have learned from it, but did you feel like the person you are now, that's kind of contributed to to the strength that you have as as, as Aoife right now in, I was going to say, what year is it, 2019? 2019, God. Definitely. I mean, it allowed me, in order to sort of get away from the bullying, I just put my head down and got on with my studies. Right. Because I always, even though I was really young, like 16 we're talking about, you're, yeah, you're a teenager, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that my ticket out of that was my studying, was my grades. And I oh, basically right. took my head down and I studied hard. I, um, you know, I got amazing GCSE results. Um, and that allowed me really to, you know, go on to a really good um, college. So I went to the Brit School of Performing Arts. Yeah. And, you know, total contrast to, to, you know, the heavy homophobic bullying. But... You know, the bullying just allowed me to focus on, you know, my passionate subjects of music and drama. Yeah. Um, and allowed me just to focus on the next step, which was essentially getting out of that secondary school environment, that homophobic bullying environment and going on to a place where things would be better. I knew they would be better. Yeah. So that, that's how I coped. I mean, I think it's great that it made you... F- it actually focused you yes you know as far as academia 
it did you a favour, so screw them. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, just totally screw them. And never at any point during that bullying did I ever, you know, say I wasn't different. I mean, I didn't quite know what I was then. I mean, you know, I was being told that I was gay, so I just thought, okay, maybe I am gay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah I just course. sort of, you know, I just took that on. And at never any point did I say, no, uh, this, you know, I didn't try and be anything different. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I was pretty, you know, looking back now, I was still quite strong-willed as a teenager. Even from that age. Yeah. Um. So the Brit school. Mm. I mean, so you say, like, from one extreme to the other, I mean... Did, was that like blossoming here I am and it was an amazing experience I mean it was you know you see fame you see his fame score it was it's literally like that I mean I did have a moment where I was on the canteen table singing fame of course. it was fabulous I mean I went from a you know a homophobic environment to a fully expressive environment you know you had gay people you had lesbians you had you know trans you had all sorts of people larger than life and we were all you know 16 to 18 all trying to find ourselves um and also learn you know the arts of of musical theater um which is you know the strand that i ended up doing at the british school right and it it was a great time because you know as well as you know being taught your a levels you do have a lot of time to you know, indulge in musical theatre and singing, acting and dancing and train. And it allows you that freedom and that time to really express. Mm. And again, I I could be any gay that I wanted to be. And my God, I did. I wore all sorts of outfits. I, you know, I, I had my early relationship at that in, in, in the Brit school. I began sneaking out and going out into London on the, you know, the gay club scene. Mm. Um, yeah, I want to ask you about your first And it just, it, it just, um, it was an amazing time because it just allowed me to be me. I sort of lost that, you know, as a teenager and going through the bullying, like you, you do have a bit of fear, like, not even a bit of fear, you have a lot of fear. Yeah, Come yeah. on, I was threatened. I had my first death threats, if you like. <laughs> So, I mean, I can laugh about it now, but God, at the time it was harrowing. So, you know, going from that to having the space to be myself and discover myself was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember your first, your first show, the first musical that you would have taken you back? Yes, I mean, I remember that our, um, you know, end of year sort of musical was Pippin. Ah, which uh-huh. is an amazing musical. Mm. I mean, I would say, look, try and get to see the film if you can. Yeah. It's an amazing um, musical about self-discovery, about, you know, d- sexualization, about sort of expression, being yourself. It's, it's an amazing, amazing... You know, it's about Pippin, who's a young guy, a young prince, who's essentially trying to find himself and, and trying to, you know beat the confinements of life if you like yeah. and he tries all sorts of things and it's an amazing soundtrack and you know choreographed by bob fossey yeah it was just brilliant i mean it was an amazing amazing show and i was glad to be part of it good call good call and good recommendation mm-hmm. <laughs> um so at that point who were your who were your heroes at and role models i mean who did you look up to whether it was people in pop music or whether it was people who were in drag or cabaret or theater who were the people that you kind of went right i 
you know, because we all had them. We've all had them. Of course. I mean, I was a 90s kid, so my references very much were, you know, late 90s stuff. So mm. I was a massive Spice Girls fan. I just loved how camp they were, how expressive they were, how, you know, it was a girl group that allowed you to be part of it, whatever you were, sure. as long as you believed in girl power. Yeah. And I just thought my girl power at the time was just me being gay. So I, right. I, 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 I idolised, um, you know, the Spice Girls. I would tape, you know, these were the days of video recorders. Mm. So I would just tape every single performance, every single interview, you know, Smash Hits magazine, I would have their... Uh, posters up on my wall. Yeah. I love the Spice Girls. Did you ever go and see them? You know what? No, not at the time. This I'm year? Not, uh, I've got tickets you for got this tickets. year. I've got tickets <laughs> for this year. And I went to see them in 2008 for the, their reunion tour then. Right. But at the time of their, you know, their height in the 90s, I, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. And I... Um, I was also really, really, um, you know, late 90s, Dana International won the 98 Eurovision Song Contest. Mm, mm-hmm, I remember. And, you know, being fascinated by her being transsexual, mm. I mean, that's how she was described at the time, you know, you're, she's a transsexual yeah. singer, won the Eurovision Song Contest. And I remember watching that song contest and not really knowing that she was, you know, transgender. I just right. assumed she was a cisgender female. Right. And it's only, you know... She won the Eurovision Song Contest and then following the Eurovision, there's always a news bulletin and the it, it, the news bulletin on the BBC was, you know, Israel's won the Eurovision Song Contest, transsexual singer. And I remember thinking, what's transsexual? And they explained what it was. And right. I was like, oh my gosh, fascination. Sure. And obviously this was the days before the internet, but I remember buying her single, buying, you know, mm. the, the Eurovision winner, um... And just diva the diva. Yes, yes, diva. And literally, I still, I think I still even have the cassette somewhere in my, <laughs> in my, in my, um, in my compartment somewhere. <laughs> um, but you know, she was a massive influence on me at the time. Yeah. And also Lily Savage, Lily Savage on Big Breakfast, and, um, you know, the, these were the days when, um, you didn't really have out and proud sort of gay people. On, on the television, no. you know, Will, Will Young coming out as gay during the pop idol years was a massive influence on, on me sure. and probably a lot of gay boys at the time. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, 2001, that's the year I started the Brit School. So a lot of these things were Imprinted massive, you, yeah. massive, massive sort of um, things of, of the time for me. Yeah. Um, so those are were sort of my references, I'd say. I obviously remember, like, as a child, seeing Dame Edna Everidge um, oh, yeah. on, on television, and, and she was fab. Mm. Um, Danny LaRue was a bit before my time. Um, right, OK. But sort of my references were Dame Edna Everidge, were, you know, Dana International, Spice Girls. I remember, you know, absolutely fabulous and, and gimme, gimme, gimme. Uh-huh, um, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, God, I, I, I recently went back... A lot of comedy back, as well, yeah. A lot of comedy. I recently went back to watching Birds of a Feather <laughs> and Keeping Up Appearances. Oh, my goodness. And I always found them highly camp. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, yes. and I, 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 look, I can look back now and go, oh, God, that is so camp. But at the time, I was just drawn to that humour and that... <laughs> What I just saw as Not fabulousness. Not knowing quite why it was... Yeah, why I liked it, but I just loved it. Yeah. I remember, you know, sneaking in and seeing Queer as Folk. Okay. Um, um, you know, again, late 90s, but not quite... What's the word? 
you know, these were the days before I started going out on the on the gay scene and uh, well before I started having my own sexual yeah. um, uh, experiences. Yeah. And Jamie. I remember that famous scene about getting rimmed. And oh, I was like, God, oh that's... my God, that was so sexy. But I was just like, God, would I... That's a bit weird. Like, Can I associate you know? myself with that? Yeah. yeah. And obviously I went on to get rimmed and, and, and <laughs> be associated with that. Yeah, but at the time, you know, being so young, like, I just didn't quite didn't know. know. Do, and... Yeah. You know, the way it was pictured was, you know, it was late at night. It was seen as something revolutionary and something you shouldn't really be watching. I mean, I watched it when, you know, mum and dad had gone to sleep and everything. Um, And again, it was all part of the bullying. I got bullied for, oh, you're one of those people that are from queer as folk. And that's how I found out about it. it I didn't know about it. People using that show to reference and to bully you because of yeah exactly I mean I didn't I didn't know what it was until I got bullied for it and so I went to watch it and I was like oh okay Um, (laughs) yes I am (laughs) exactly I look forward to the moment when yeah oh that's I mean yeah to be honest with you I think for a lot a lot of people even people because I'm a generation older than you I'd say um, but Queer as Folk is such a moment of, of if the tide's turning I mean, that's something I do want to talk to you about now is do you feel at the moment, I'm jumping all over the place, but yeah. is do you feel at the moment the tide's turned back again because with uh, alongside Brexit and Trump and the way the world is at the moment and kind of leaning very right? Have you felt, have you felt it kind of change? Take a step back or are you kind of, I don't know, t- tell me what you, your feelings on it. Because I have personally, feel a little bit like... I mean, of course, times have changed. I mean, you know, when I think back to when I was growing up, late 90s, you had the Labour government that had just come into power. Yeah. Politically, things were so different. Yeah. You know, the economy was booming. There was a lot of public spending. Yeah. Um, you know, it was very much about this thing about multiculturalism and cool Britannia was sort of, you know, thrown oh, in your absolutely. face. And, you know, it was really cool to be British. Along you know, with the Spice Girls, all that Along power. with the Spice Girls. You know, you also had Britpop, Oasis, mm. which wasn't my thing, but... It was cool to be English, British, mm-hmm. you know, and you could do all sorts of things, you know, yeah. whether you were an indie kid, whether you were a pop fan. It was just so cool. Yeah. And times were very different. And, you know, the pendulum always swings. So if the pendulum is swinging in, in the right wing capacity at the moment, yes, we've got Brexit, Trump. We've got, you know, we don't even know whether Brexit's going to happen or not. Yeah, like, what's, what's, you know, the, the Europeans have all of a sudden been are now the enemy, if you like, or, mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. other, if or you like. Or the other, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah. yeah, I just find it fascinating that we're going through these times. Obviously, I do think the pendulum's going to swing the other way and left-wing, you know, um, uh, views will come out again. Yeah. But I do believe, you know, I don't remember the 80s, but in a weird way, a lot of people tell me that we're going through a shadow of the 80s again. A little bit. I think you know, right. and th- that right-wing sentiment is is um, out there. And, um, you know, I, I always say there's back. a danger. There's a danger of people forgetting their history. You know, it was the Absolutely. 80s that actually brought us Section 28, yeah. which I was a victim of in the 90s. Yeah. So we have to be very wary. I mean, you know, I have all my political views and I find it fascinating that LGBT people would vote for Brexit. Um, considering that LGBT law, most of it does come from uh, the European Union and that it's not guaranteed in stone. Mm -hmm. And that with all this right-wing sentiment, you know, civil partnerships, gay marriage, equal marriage, 
um, transgender rights, they can be taken away from us at any point. That is the thing, absolutely. And, you know, I, last year I was performing at Reading Pride and there was a petition going round to guarantee LGBT rights once we have Brexit. And that says it all because people are like, oh my gosh, we're not going to get our rights. And it's just like, well, they could be copied over, but there's no guarantee there's that no they guarantee. will. And it, it's fascinating that people don't know this, that voted for it, especially from, you know, LGBT communities. Then, you know, I'm obviously from an ethnic minority community as well. And the amount of ethnic minorities that voted for Brexit, mm. that went into it blindly. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I, I firmly believe that it was the minorities that got us Brexit. You know, it was the LGBT and uh, the um, ethnic minorities that swung it because it was such a tight vote. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going through fascinating times where yeah. people should look back to history but aren't looking back to history. Well, it's interesting you said about the 80s and bringing that up because that's it's true. I feel very much... I mean, Eve, but then what comes with that is that people like yourself, people like myself... Will will be part of a are hopefully part of the movement to swing the pendulum. I hope so. I hope so. I Let's mean, hope, anyway. this decade we've had riots. We've had right wing, you know, uh, thoughts and fundamentalism going up. Mm. That's the eighties for you. Yeah, That's the way I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, sorry, I jumped into throw politics. <laughs> and we're just having a cup of tea. But um, so what? At what stage did you? So you kind of started to you're watching Queer as Folk and. And, and starting to realise that you felt at that point that you were initially felt that you were gay. Mm. Um, and then going into the scene, going out on the scene, you said you kind of crept into London and had... So what was that for you? I mean, where did you go and, and what were your first kind of tentative steps out into LGBT life in London? So my first port... port my first ports of court, I should yes. say, <laughs> were uh, GAY. So uh -huh. I went to GAY bar. Um, back then you didn't have GAY late. I went to GAY no. bar. I went to Cuba. I went very much in Soho. Yeah. Um, back then GAY the club was at the Astoria. Which sadly no longer exists. Which no longer exists because yeah. of um, Crossrail. Crossrail. Which I hope comes soon. Yeah, we'll but, see if that you know, we'll see if that happens <laughs> uh, when it happens. But, you know, back then that was sort of my gay mecca, if you like. Heaven, where G.A.Y. is now, was known as Heaven. Mm. It was known as Under the Arches. It was very much the cool gay club, the alternative gay club, the, you know, the gay club where all the indie kids went to or, you know, the R&B kids went to. Mm. And then you also had... God, I've forgotten what it's called now and people are going to kill me, but there was a club at the Scala. Pop Stars. Pop Stars, yeah, which was, was you know, oh, I love Pop Stars yes. and Tommy was in charge of it. Mm -hmm. And I love Tommy. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's where I used to go. Those yeah. were sort of my callings. Um, I was very much about the big club experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know. So again, did you go to the club? Did you, were you going with people from the Brit school? Or were you kind of I would go with uh, people from the Brit school, mm. but then I also went with my best friend, Sergio, mm. who, who lives with me now, right. who I've known for 21 years, uh, who we both met at secondary school, got bullied together, and just made a pact, uh, really, a lifelong pact. Nice. And you're still... Still besties. Still besties. He does my makeup. You know, has been with me through every inch and nook and cranny of my life and my turnings. And um, yeah, I would just sneak out with him. And 
would have the time of my life, first of all. You know, this was very much a place where we felt we belonged, finally, after all those years of bullying. Mm. You know, um, you know, the Brit school was my experience, but going out clubbing was mine and Sergio's experience. Mm. And that was very much, you know, in the shadow of what had been, which was the homophobic bullying. And it was brilliant. Um, Sergio is, you know, Portuguese uh, immigrant, um, uh, doesn't look Portuguese at all, looks very British white, has very much passing privilege because of his accent and the way he right, looks. Right. And I, I, that's when I first ever in my life faced racism, was within the LGBT community, was going out clubbing. You know, I never faced racism up until that point. Right. But it was when I went to the LGBT community that I had my first um, realisations that I was different. And, uh, which is interesting because being LGBT, you're different anyway. But, you know, GAY back then and GAY bar back then was very different. I mean, mm. I, there were times when I would walk in and I'd be the only brown person there, or I'd be the only Muslim or, or right. Asian person there. Right. Um, and, um, if you go now, I mean, it's a whole different story. You get, you get people from all walks of life at GAY. Yeah. Um, you get all sorts of youngsters of all different colours, of all different sort of denominations. People don't just identify as queer or gay. There's, you've got your gender queers, your trans people. Yeah. And it's, it's a melting pot. But back then, um, you know, late 90s, early, uh, early noughties, it was, um, it was super white. And that's, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I always felt, you know, picking up Boys Magazine, picking up QX Magazine, what was portrayed was very much the white, blue-eyed, blonde, young twink. Sure. And because that's all I was seeing, I wasn't seeing different types of gay people. I was just seeing the young, blonde, blue-eyed twink. What was being given to you. What yeah. was being given to me and what was being desired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I remember having, I would be dancing on one hand on the dance floor and being, and had conversations of, oh, you're Asian. Oh, okay, so you're Muslim. Why do you identify as Muslim? Why, why would you want to be part of a religion that is so anti-gay? And, you know, I remember all these conversations and not really having the answers or not feeling like, okay, I want to be part of this community. I know I'm part of this community, this LGBT community. I can't really go and come out to my, you know, my Muslim and Asian community. Um, and, you know, coming from this onset of being really heavily bullied, I really wanted to be part of a community. Yeah. So I basically began going to Topshop and Topman and buying the latest um, T-shirts and jeans that were out and becoming what I thought was acceptable, which was the blonde, blue-eyed twink. So I would straighten my curly, coarse hair. I would have it, you know, uh, Uh, go to Tony and Guy, have those latest looks and really straighten my hair and just make it, you know, not Asian, basically. Um, Anything that was Asian, I would sort of keep at home. So I lived very much a double life. You know, I was, when I was at home, I was Asian and everything to do with, you know, being Muslim and Mm -hmm. and Asian. And then when I was out at the Brit school and out clubbing, I was your gay boy, your gay twink. Mm -hmm. And everything that came with that, you know, I was sexy. I was wearing the latest fashions. I was into the latest music. Anything that wasn't cool, like religion or anything that was the other you know, I just wasn't part of. Yeah. Um, and at the time, because I didn't see any representation, I just didn't 
I didn't, didn't um, have to, didn't to, end, to you know, it, yeah. To to. So I just sort of lived this double life. Um, Were you still at home at that point? Oh God, yeah, I was yeah. still at home. I, I was at home till I was 23, till I came out. Right. Um, and, you know, I would go out clubbing and I felt great and euphoric. And, you know, your first experiences of, of clubbing, regardless of, of LGBTness, is you feel euphoric, you feel young. There's a, there's a power there. There's, you know, you feel sexy and oh, having your first sort of desires and being desired. Yeah. It, it's, it's a brilliant time. But anything that, that was heavy which at the time for me was, you know, being Asian, being Muslim, not being out. Mm. I just sort of left to the side. Um, right. And I, I, you know, for a long time, I felt that's what I had to do in order to be accepted. To fit um, into that particular... Mm. Wow, that's, yeah. It, yeah, I mean... And that's not everyone's experience. No, it's not everyone's you know? experience, but a lot of people, I think, probably do mm. go through some kind of transformation to fit into one of the boxes of course there's there's many boxes now there's many but... boxes i mean when i when i hear young kids you know 18 to sort of 20 that are just coming into london coming into the gay scene and feeling like they have to you know be part of the chemsex scene and take certain drugs and in order to belong i just yeah. got my mind flashes back to then and you know i wasn't a heavy drinker i wasn't a heavy drug taker i did indulge i had fun but um when I look back and see things now, I think, God, there's so much danger out there and, you know, so much hazard that um, I felt, yeah. God, I, I, if I was young now, I mean, there's much more representation now, definitely. I was going to say, yeah. You know, had that sort of been in there at the time then, I, maybe I could have, you know, fallen, my life could have been so different. But yeah. then you wouldn't have taken the journey to get to where you are now, and who knows? Exactly. You know, whether you'd still... I mean, I'm sure you'd still be performing. Mm, oh, but, yeah, who knows? Who knows? But, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, I remember you, I, listening to interviews with you before, and you were talking about when you told your parents, when you finally came out to your parents, that they said to, they, they took you to the mosque, they took you to a doctor as well? Yes. Like, so, when I finally came out, I was 23, um, and... My mum and dad I came out to when I was 23. Yeah. My sister I came out to when I was 16. Like, this was my Brit school years where she read one of my diaries. Um, oh, right. And she was the first person I, that sort of found out. And she confirmed to me what I had felt for years. Mm. She said, you know, it's cool. I, I get what you are. Just don't tell mum and dad. They're not going to get it. Right. And, you know, my sister's... At the time, she was 10. So she was a young oh, girl, wow. <laughs> you know, but she knew. And it's something that I think, you know, when you're growing up Muslim, when you're growing up Asian, there are certain things that you know that are part of culture that are right or wrong or that are sort of taught to you, you know? So uh, that was sort of inherent, inherently sort of insti uh, instilled in me, but I didn't know why. But um, when I eventually did come out to my parents, I was 23, I was, uh, I was at university um, and after Brit school, there was this opportunity to go to RADA. Now, I didn't go to RADA. I turned it down because I was so scared that if I followed a career in performing, that I would... Um, everyone would find out about me being gay. And so I turned it down and went to university. I did right. media and film studies. Oh, okay. But it was the best decision that I ever did because it was there that I ended up meeting... Um, uh, a future partner 
who was Muslim, Pakistani, and from overseas. Right. Um, and it was interesting because he was already out to his parents. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. But we began getting serious very soon. And for him, it was like, you have to come out uh, if you want to be serious with me, as in if you want this to be long term. Mm. You, you can't go through life sort of not being yourself. So I ended up coming out to my parents and... Um, yeah. Um, I entered this period of just so many questions being thrown at me, you know. Some I had the answers to. Some I didn't. Mm. And some I did, but I didn't want to disclose to my parents. I didn't want to say to my parents that I was having sex, that I was, you know... Uh, th- there's certain things that are so personal that yeah. you don't really want to discuss with your parents. At any point. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, my mum and dad... I, I sort of felt... I sort of felt that I'd let my parents down. I don't think ashamed is the right word, but I just felt that... I had brought my parents into this area of my life that I didn't know where it was going. You know, did I want to continue with just being this gay boy that just wasn't happy, that was lying to, you know, so many parts of my life hadn't come together. You know, on one hand, I was, you know, living a double life where on one hand I was Asian and the perfect Asian boy. And on the other hand, I was this, you know, gay twink, but was so unhappy because I just wasn't intertwining all my identities together. Um, And, you know, when I did come out, my parents took me to, first of all, the local GP, who was our family doctor for years. Again, a trusted Asian person Mm -hmm. within the community. And they took me there, not sort of from a place of malice or or evil, if you like. It was very much not understanding what being gay was. Yeah. And they thought maybe it was just something medical. They thought maybe it was just something that, you know, maybe my machinery. I remember my dad saying, is your machinery working? Right. So, you know, I went to the doctor and Dr. uh, Patel very much. We had two family doctors in that um, uh, surgery, Dr. Patel and Dr. Singh. And they both stuck up for me. They both said, look, there's nothing that we can... There's no medicine that we can give here. This is who your son is. We get that culturally it's it's going to be a challenge. But there's not something here that we can prescribe. Mm. This is who he is. And looking back now, God, that was quite powerful for me. Yeah. Uh, my parents sort of then took me to my imam at my local mosque. Mm. And... Um, they um um they you know when you have your community on you when you have your mom and dad on your case when you have uh your imam on your case it's you know and you don't have all the answers things just get really heavy and really dark and i remember you know there were so many things that obviously being confident and being ballsy um, so many things were offered to me, like, mm. you know, okay, if you can't, first thing was marriage, you know, get married to a woman, everything will be fine, you know, by that, everyone just assumed that I hadn't had sex with a man by that point, because I didn't want to disclose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they just said, you know, once you're, you have sex, things will be absolutely fine, you'll have children, this is a part that you will sort of, you know, it's kind of, kind of like seen as marriage as a cure, if you like. Mm. The other thing was celibacy, 
Like, don't, don't, ma- okay, if you don't want to marry, just don't have sex. Like, don't have sex with a woman, don't have sex with a man. Sort of become, give your life to Islam, right, if you like. Right, right. Become this person of God, if you like. You know, which I guess in the Catholic term is just equivalent to becoming a priest. Yeah. You know, sure. Give yourself to sure. religion. Um, and, um, you know, I sort of fell into really a dark place, into a deep depression, and I agreed uh, to marriage, and I agreed to... And en- I entered into a, an engagement with my first cousin in, in Pakistan. Right. And, um, you know, in Pakistani and Muslim culture, like, you do... Uh, not so much now, but, you know, very much my parents' generations, they would marry, you know first cousins or distant cousins mm-hmm. would marry and um for six months i was in that engagement and um i just fell into a dark depression yeah, i didn't know I'm where to surprised. go uh my university grades started falling behind my my lecturers just my tutor basically just pulled me into a room one day and said what's going on like you're handing in work that is below your standard you're a bright kid mm. what's happening here and I remember just crying and just letting it all out and telling him what was going on mm. and he just basically he very much was a lifesaver he put me in touch with LGBT charities in uh, central London which I just would not have had the either the courage to go to I mean you know I didn't realise that there were support groups out there for you. I just thought that the LGBT community was just about clubbing and clubs sure. and, and all that. I didn't realise there were support groups there. And, you know, even then, had I known, maybe I wouldn't have gone because there was a stigma attached to, why do I need to support? Why do I need to go to a group? Yeah. Why do I need to go to do equivalent of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? Sure, does right? this make me weaker? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad I went because I then realised there were other gay Asians, gay Muslims out there. Mm. And I know it's going to sound ridiculous, I thought I was the only one up until that point. I was 23, I thought I was the only gay Asian, gay Muslim, because I wasn't seeing myself anywhere. Yeah, yeah. You know, out on the scene, I wasn't seeing other people. Yeah. And then I just discovered... I discovered the gay Asian community, I discovered the gay Asian scene, I discovered places like Club Kali... Um, Urban Desi, which, you know, were gay Asian music clubs, which I didn't realise were there. Mm. How did um, you actually discover it? Was that through... It was through the charities, it was yeah. through the, you know, the support groups. Yeah. I went to support groups for specifically for South Asian LGBT communities, which at the time were well-funded and now, like, are dwindling. Yeah. But really helped me. I mean, back then, I mean... You know, we had mental health organisations like PACE, Mm -hmm. which ran residentials for for Asian and Muslim LGBT communities, which you don't really get now. No, right. And, you know, I remember going on these residentials. And so what happened was that my university allowed me to defer my year. Mm -hmm. And that year... I used to really discover who I was. I went on all these groups. I went on all these residentials. I volunteered for charities. Okay. I volunteered for Pride. I just... I became proud of every part of myself. Mm. Because I saw myself everywhere. I saw myself in the support groups. I saw myself in other gay Asians, other gay Muslims. I began attending, you know, organisations like NAS, um, which, you know, is... 
a BAME support mm-hmm. network around sexual health, but ran, you know, groups for South Asian LGBT people. Mm-hmm. I began going to meetings from Iman, which is the gay Muslim support group. Which still exists, is, is here now. Still exists. Yeah. I mean, both, both Naz and Iman still exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and for anybody, just because in case anybody's listening, do you, can you think yes. of their addresses off? So Iman is www.iman.org. Yeah. And Naz is nazz.org.uk. Yeah. And, you know, brilliant organizations yeah. that allowed me just to indulge and, and discover myself and be part of, you know, people that were really proud of being gay, Asian, Muslim, you know, all sorts of different identities mm-hmm. that I, wa- I wasn't seeing out there on the gay yeah. scene. On the, on the, yeah, on the, in, the so- in Soho. In yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so I went and after six months of really taking time out or focusing on me, mm. I went back to my parents and I said, I don't want to. I don't want to marry my cousin. I want to marry my boyfriend. And, you know, that caused a lot of problems within my immediate family because it's such a close... My cousin essentially was my mum's sister's daughter. Right. And it stopped me from going back to Pakistan for so many years, especially after living in Pakistan. Because not only did I live in Pakistan for the first year of my life, Mm. I also lived in Pakistan between the ages of 11 and 14. Oh, right. So when I came back uh, as a teenager, Mm -hmm. that's when I was heavily bullied. Right, okay. uh, In my GCSE years. So... Yeah, it was a very difficult time, but I really put my foot down um, and I moved out and civilly partnered my partner. Right, okay. You know? Um, I mean, this is a major point of huge change. I mean, you knew you were dealing with you before all this, but I know this is kind of, this is a massive point in time for you, isn't it? Because so many well, things happened and the, the ball started rolling. I mean, in a short space of time, in like a year or two, literally I came out, I became, you know, and everyone knows that when you come out, you feel exposed, you feel vulnerable, Mm -hmm. because you don't know how life is going to go, you don't know how people around you are going to take you. I mean, you know, many people say it's easier coming out now, but I always say it's geographic lottery, it depends where you're born, it depends where you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even in the UK, I mean, if you're coming out in, say, if you're coming out in Derry in Northern Ireland... (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? That would be difficult to whether you're coming out in Westminster in London. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's coming out, you feel vulnerable, you feel exposed. And I went through, you know, a year or two of doing that. But doing it allowed me to just become stronger, know what I wanted from life. Mm. And, you know, yes, I did want to be part of an LGBT life. I did want to be part of an Asian life or a Muslim life of, of, of an intersectional person. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I was proud of every part of myself. Yeah. And I knew then that, you know, I luckily I had a boyfriend. Luckily, I, um, you know, I moved out. I, I uh, civilly partnered him. Mm-hmm. And what began very much was a celebration because I felt I had achieved so much. And, you know, I was so young. I was in my mid-twenties at this point. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I began just celebrating my life. And, you know, my mum ended up coming to my civil partnership ceremony, giving okay. me away. Um, 
my dad didn't come but in time came round to the idea he very much you know not at any point did my mum and dad disown me yeah you know the door was always open I always visited I always you know we were always in touch we always saw each other sure and that's still the 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 the, the, the way it is, way it is at the moment and um I I began going out again you know, because there was a period for one or two years where I stopped going out on mm. the... I'm talking about the mainstream gay scene. Sure. And I began going out again, but going out as myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't straighten my hair. My hair would be curly, coarse. You know, very Asian, very... May, may, many people mistake me for North African, Arab, right. Mexican, Hispanic, whatever, you name right. it. But I, I was very... I became very proud of my ethnicity. Um, and... Um, I was out clubbing one day and with my friends and I saw a advert for Drag Idol UK, which, you know, for those people that don't know, Drag Idol UK is the UK's annual national cabaret competition. Yeah. And, you know, I had left performing behind because I was so scared of, of coming out. Sure. So my friends were like, go on, do it. You're, you'd be amazing at this. And... I wanted to perform. I wanted to celebrate me. Mm. And I entered this competition. And I don't know about you, Matt, but if you're going to enter a competition, I want to enter to win. Yeah, completely. And this was 2012. And, you know, I always felt that my life was politicalized because of who I was. And at the time, you know, being Muslim was very much in the media. The burqa was in the media. This Mm -hmm. whole notion of being British Muslim, what it was. And it's seen as conservative and... I sort of went into this competition wearing a burqa and I really wanted to represent who I was. And I remember Sergio saying, are you sure? Because you don't want to alienate audiences or you don't want to, I don't, you don't want the burqa just maligning who you are at your drag act. And I was like, well, I've seen years and years of drag acts and cabaret acts like use you know, nuns' outfits and and use religion and parody religion and, you know, so many sister act parodies. And Mm -hmm. I really wanted to just use that because that's who I was, you know. I I didn't want to just be your standard bog act, you know, bog standard drag act that, you know, uh, did the norm. I wanted to do more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I within my drag act... um, you know, I, I, me and my friends came up with this idea of a Sifa Lahore. Um, and I went on performing a parody of Barbie Girl by Aqua. But instead of doing Barbie Girl, I did, you know, I'm a Punjabi girl in a Punjabi world. Yeah. My name's Asifa. I wear a burqa. And I just talked to, within this song, I went on in a black burqa. I ripped it off to, you know, um, reveal a very ornate sari which I would just rip off during the last part of the song to reveal a mini skirt. And within the song and within the act, I talked about being British. I talked about being Asian. Mm. I talked about being Muslim. Um, I talked about my own experiences, Mm. you know, and really became this larger than life persona that, you know, wasn't afraid to take the mick out of themselves, wasn't afraid to parody themselves. Because I was so comfortable with all parts of my identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it really challenged audiences. On one hand, yeah. you had the LGBT audience that were like, 
oh my gosh, this is great. You know, this is absolutely great. This is all about diversity. This is absolutely, this is new as well. Yeah. But then you had the other part of the audience were like, this is, this is offensive to being gay. This is offensive to being Muslim. It really, you know, raised the question of, can you be part of a religious organisation and be gay? You know, yeah. is this some... It, it really challenged audiences. Completely. And... You know, Sergio would go during the competition because a lot of the competition, the judging panels would be half and half divided. They'd be like, well, could a Muslim drag queen get gigs? Because they were looking for the next best drag person to represent that competition. And not just represent the competition in London, but competition around the UK. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it really challenged people. And it went back, I always went back to Sergio's point is, do you really want religion overpowering your drag act? But, you know, it, for me, it went back to my pride. Yeah. Why should I have... It went back to my experiences on the gay scene. Why should I have to erase my Muslimness and my Asianness just to be a successful drag act? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I took the burqa and I just went ballistic with it. I, I had a, a rainbow-coloured burqa made. I had a gold lame one made. I had a sequined one made. Fabulous. I had a... You know, recently, because of... Brexit, I also have a, a Union Jack book I made. Seriously. You know, because it's, it, this, it's, it's, it's who I am. Yeah. You know, I, I'm really proud of all my identities, including being British. And, you know, when I go to, when I go into Middle England and when I put on my Union Jack burqa, the crowds go ballistic. They mm. love it because they see, okay, they're challenged because of the burqa, but they see a part of themselves in the Union Jack. Mm. And that's what it's about, you know. That's it's interesting, it's yeah. going, look, this is who I am. And um, yes, life is challenging, but hey, this is my reality. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that drag act, it was the competition that gave me the title of Muslim, uh, Britain's first out Muslim drag queen. Because I was the first Muslim drag queen to enter that competition. Mm. And I was the first Muslim drag queen to not only enter the competition, but make the national final. Yeah. And the national final got me a lot of publicity within the gay press. Mm-hmm. Um, I won the bronze award that year. I came third. Right. And it just propelled me to not only get gigs around the country, I went on to um, open my own um, gay Asian nightclubs. Yes. Um, and it allowed me to create spaces for people like myself. Um and also allowed me to, you know, put stuff out on YouTube. My Punjabi girl parody became so popular that I decided to create a music video around it, which I put on YouTube, which is still there today. Yeah. And creates so much discussion. I mean, if you see the, the, the comments on YouTube around it, God, oh, it, sure. it, it, it creates so much discussion within the Muslim community, within the LGBT community. And at never any point do I delete anything on, on social media. I... I'm very much of the ilk. Okay, you can delete it. But actually, by having it out there, it can be seen. Mm-hmm. Those, those notions, those viewpoints can be seen. They mm-hmm. can be addressed. They can be challenged. They can be agreed upon. Yeah. They can be validated, not validated. But by erasing them, you're erasing. Yeah, you're erasing people's psyches. And for me, it's yeah. not about doing that. It's actually about having the conversation. Yeah. So... Yeah, what well, I, be- I, I began, you know, I entered a really celebratory part of my life. And one reason for doing the YouTube stuff, for doing the social media stuff is I would hear so many stories from people from within my community, you know, stories of racism, 
stories of honor killings. People would just vanish after like a couple of years of coming to the clubs. People wouldn't come again, wow. and I'd, I'd be like, "Why is that?" I'd ask around, "What what happened to that person?" Oh, they went and got married, or right. you know, you'd hear stories where that person um, would just vanish. And these are real people and a lot of people, you know, people would come and sign up to the mailing list and be like, oh, can you not send me a text message because I'm afraid my wife will see. And, you know, on one hand, I saw that side of the community. But then on the other hand, I saw this young side of the community that were very forward thinking, that were very much like, we don't want to be part of the norm. And mm. in the gay Asian community, the norm is to keep underground, to lead a double lifestyle, to keep everyone happy. Mm. And people, because I was out there being out there and proud, people, a lot of people, I was the first point of call for people. I was the first reference. Sure. And I, at never at any point had I set out to be a role model, but I saw a lot of people coming to me and telling me their stories and telling me that they want to change. And, mm. you know, on one hand, Matt, I, ha I could have easily carried on being underground and just you know i was i was a super I, I still am a super successful drag queen you know it pays the mortgage yeah, yeah yeah i could have looked at the money and just carried on doing that but it got to a point where i just wanted to challenge the world mm. and part of that was part of my social media and being out and proud and being out there and creating comedy and creating discussions within my drag act was part of taking the conversation out there taking lgbtness taking um, ethnicity, taking religion, taking, you know, taking intersectionality and putting yeah. it out there. Yeah. And obviously, you know, by being out there, being out there on social media, and this was, you know, 2012, this was the early days of social media. Yes. You so know, we just very, had, yeah, you know, tip of the iceberg. Tip of the iceberg. <laughs> and literally you, I got contacted by many like media outlets mm. and I resisted for a little while because I was like okay it's one thing being out in my family it's another thing being out in the LGBT community and my parents were very much like do what you need to do but just be aware that if you're out out there mm. this will really impact on our lives as yeah. in my family's yeah. lives so I really had to do a lot of thinking and at first I was like no 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 I don't want to do anything with the BBC I don't want to do anything with with local media but then when I saw all these stories I just something in my heart was like I can't just stand back and just you know look at the money and not do something mm. you know I have all these young people that really want a difference and maybe I can create change in the world and I would always go back to Gandhi's thing about you know be the change you want to see in the You're world right yeah 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 and so I decided just to, you know, I, I, I remember being contacted uh, in 2014 by BBC Free Speech where they said, you know, do, would you like to ask a question? And I said, okay, I want to ask, when will it be acceptable to be Muslim and gay? Mm. And obviously that question was censored, essentially. Uh, it was meant to be discussed within the confines of, the, the episode was meant to be, um, filmed in Birmingham Central Mosque and 10 minutes before the broadcast there was all these um, the mosque were like this will cause a lot of 
trouble for the mosque and right. for there will be riots on the streets in 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 within the Muslim community in yeah. in Birmingham and outside the mosque and because on social media a week before all the questions went out and that was the most talked about question on social media and um, so the discussion didn't go ahead and then the the mainstream British media just got hold of it and were like for for a for a program that's called free speech why wasn't this allowed and on a bbc show and you know i became the darling of the media that mm, week and mm -hmm. it really allowed me to pinpoint the question everywhere yeah you know on channel four news on on you know i gave an interview to the sun and all sorts of outlets yeah. that really just allowed um a different way of being muslim a different way of being lgbt yeah. out there in the world out there in british psyche the you know the discussion was had the week after i was going to say so then yeah. yeah but it was it was had in a in a non-religious setting yeah because that was seen as acceptable at the time right. and i was you know it was very much like well it's interesting how this conversation can be had mm. in a non-religious setting mm. but it can't actually be have in a it can't be had in a religious setting where it matters so you know from then i went on to do muslim drag queens which first was I had I was contacted by the Guardian newspaper, yeah. who did an online short documentary called Muslim Drag Queens, mm -hmm. and then when that went out, Channel Four just became interested on actually doing a more in depth, hour long documentary. Okay, that came from. And that came as a result of the Guardian documentary mm -hmm. of the short documentary, and obviously I did Muslim Drag Queens, and, you know, that was narrated by Sir Ian McKellen and. Th that just went international yeah that just you know for a whole hour on british tv the issue was out there the muslim drag scene was out there the 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 lgbt muslim scene was out there the discussion was had everywhere yeah and it just propelled me it just really propelled me um and cemented my title if you like of britain's first out muslim drag queen um, and I want to make clear that I'm not the first British Muslim queen. I'm sure there have been many before me. I was just the first one to have balls and the first one to be out and proud. Yeah. In, yeah, in yeah, not yeah. just in the community, but actually out there in the world. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it just, it was a very proud moment for me because... Not only was the issue out there, it was the first time my mum and my family took part in the, in the discussion. Okay. My sister took part in the documentary, my mum took part in the documentary. Right. yes. And I think it just showed the world and the Muslim community that you can, you can be, you know, both Muslim and gay and and everything you can be intersectional and that it not only affects you it affects your family it yeah. affects the world it affects so many people yeah um and i think allies began just coming on board you know so ian mckellen narrated it um i remember in the press conference him saying that i that he felt ashamed that he didn't know enough about the subject as an lgbt person absolutely and that it just opened the door that you know ethnicity and religion is tied with with LGBTness and mm -hmm. that one minority is not superior over another minority. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I did it. I'm so, so glad I did it. I mean, I think it just, I just remember seeing personally, seeing, um, seeing it and thinking, and obviously you kind of as the, let's say, masthead of it, the, the helm of it, and that your, your confidence and the balls to do it, and you, you kind of introducing the younger, the, uh, the younger, the younger drag queens to, to the to the environment and taking them to where was the club? Was it Newcastle or Birmingham? Uh, it a, was. Uh, so you, the, you weren't there, but they went up yes, and did their first. Yes. First. Gig. Yes, exactly. So introducing like new queens to doing their new gigs and taking them through the process of dragging up for the first. Time. Dragging up the first time, and I yeah. think that is just yeah incredible that you gave them the we can do this. Yeah, so it's wonderful. I mean. A politics aside, that in itself is political, which I think is in, is incredible. Of course, so, um, God, I've got so many things to talk about. Yeah, so go, for it. go um, for it. I, I, I want to keep you all day. Um, but yes, yeah, so drag idol. My goodness, that was where we went right through. Um, so yeah, f- from that moment, um, and the Guardian, and then the 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 full documentary, the BBC documentary. What was your what was the after effect for you? I mean, obviously, work was improving, and and, and your, yes. you said as far as uh, you know that your uh, you as a as an entity you were out in the world. But were were there any negatives from that from that moment? Oh, of course. I mean, obviously, going out there in the world and and you know taking not only yourself but your brand out there. Yeah. You know, yes, it, it allowed me to get a lot of work. It allowed me to, you know. Um, push myself out there as well as the issue and um, that didn't come without consequences I mean yeah god I I remember the week of Muslim drag queens going out I got a lot of death threats online into my email Um, and you know by making yourself visible on an issue that divides us the world you know both being Muslim both being LGBT and on top of that a drag act God, I, I got a lot of stick for it. Yeah. A lot of stick for it. Um, and that's everywhere, within the Muslim community, within the LGBT community, everywhere. Sometimes, I mean, uh, some gigs I would just have, some doors I would have closed in my face because I was seen as being too provocative in the LGBT really? community. I was seen as my drag act maybe causing trouble. I was seen as, oh, if we book a CIFA, we might need to book extra security. Um, which is understandable on one mm-hmm. hand, but on the other hand, it's just very much, you know, brushing the issue underneath the carpet yet again. Um, yeah. Nothing happened. I mean, in terms of my safety, the police were absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, and the the furore kind of died down, so you know, calmed. within a few months, calmed down, sure. once the issue was out of the spotlight again. Yeah. Um, and I haven't received a death threat for you know, a good number of years, good. which is great. Good. Not to say I don't keep an eye on myself, mm-hmm. you know, being a public figure, being someone who divides opinions, you have to take care of yourself sure, all the time. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, it did bring a lot of pressure on the family because not only was I out, my family was out. Mm. And, you know, some sections of the family were super supportive. Other sections just closed their doors on us. You know, we didn't get invited to to certain parts of... The, you know, families' occasions or certain weddings. Um, 
and it really upset my mom and my dad. Mm. But never at any point did they disown me. They always stuck by me. It, you know, it affected them in terms of, you know, it affected large relationships. Yeah. Um, but, you know, life, life continued. Life went on. And we dealt with it as a family. Yes, there were challenges. And there still are challenges. Mm. But as a family, again, they never, they never um, disowned me, as it were, which yeah, is the classic yeah. story. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I don't want to take away from someone else's experiences. Yes, honour killings happen. Yes, disownment happens. Mm. Um, but I do find that the more and more families talk about this, the more and more time goes on. The issue is being discussed in mm. families, especially in the younger generation where, you know, people under the age of 35, maybe even 40, mm. are realising that there are LGBT people within Muslim households, within Asian households. Mm -hmm. They are becoming more visible, mm. you know, and we are growing up in a country where communities live side by side. Mm. And you're going to come in contact with a black person, you're going to come going to come in contact with an LGBT person, with a trans person, with a Muslim person. Yeah. And it's an issue that affects everybody. Yeah. Um, so I think one thing that really helped, oddly enough, was my transness. Yeah. Because... Which I do want to talk about, yeah, because I mean, we haven't even jumped onto that. Yeah, I mean, I... When I first started doing my drag act... In the early days, like I would, I remember trying on female clothes and something just clicked. Mm. It was like, I wasn't just trying on clothes. I was trying on identities mm. that just fit me like a glove. And because my drag act was so divisive and consumed me, um, I sort of put that, those questions of identity on the back burner because, okay. you know, I entered a drag competition which propelled me which allowed me a lot of work, which raised so many questions and which consumed my time. I didn't have time for myself. Mm -hmm. right. I then went on to do a lot of work within the media that didn't allow me time to... Contemplate your own to life. Contemplate or just, just be me. Yeah, I was a yeah, public yeah. figure. It took a lot. People don't realise how much time being a public figure and being a successful one mm. takes of you. Sure. And then post-Muslim drag queens... Um, You know, with the issue of gender identity and with the trans question being raised, I began to question mine, mm. you know. And I knew I was trans because my first impressions of LGBTness or otherness were in Pakistan. Mm. You know, living in Pakistan in my early teens and my formative years as a young child as well, the trans community or the hijra or the eunuch community is very visible in Pakistan, right? We see them at weddings. We see them out on the streets. They're a force to be reckoned with. They're a very, very visible force. Mm. And growing up as young, I would think, okay, that's me. Mm. Seeing, you know, a trans person dance at a wedding in, you know, makeup, in hair, in sequined outfits, and glamorous Bollywood outfits. I was like, okay, that's me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I would be, as a young child, I would be allowed to do that at weddings. I remember being allowed to put on makeup 
uh, at weddings right. and dancing. Right. Because it was just it was just seen as you know I had a privilege in Pakistan as the British child, as a British kid. So they would just let me do what I needed to do mm. because I was so effeminate anyway. They they would just allow me to do that, and it would just it would just be seen as fun. Mm. Obviously, the older I got, the less I did it because it was not frowned upon, but it was just like boys don't do that. And pointing yourself out. Like yes. To, yeah, 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 yeah. So when I was living in Pakistan in my early teenage years, mm. going to school, I would see trans people. I would see that you know that trans people, you know, they're sort of seen as in Pakistan you have men, women, and then you have the third gender. Mm. And I realized that these, you know, the, the, the third gender or what we now know as transgender people embody both male, male and female identities. And, you know, that was my first point of call of LGBTness. Mm-hmm. And then coming back to the UK and being bullied for being gay. Yeah. I was sort of like, OK, I'm gay then. I'm not I'm not that because that isn't here in the UK. Mm. Being gay is in the UK. Mm. And because I wasn't seeing any transgenderism anywhere, both in life and on the television, and whenever I did see it, I'd see it as Dame Edna or Lily Savage. And at the time, not realising that drag acts are so different to, you know, a totally different identity to being trans. I just took on the gayness. I thought, okay, that's who I am. So for years, I was the proud gay man. And I was the successful gay man. Mm, well, right. You yeah. know, I had a successful drag career. I had the husband. I had, I'd come out. So I was the public figure. And when I began questioning my gender identity, it was like, do I want to give all that up? Mm, right. Because I had done it so publicly. And if I were to transition again, I would have to do it so publicly. Mm-hmm. I couldn't just vanish and then ta-da. Sure. You know? And I questioned it for years because I questioned it post drag um, before I questioned it post Muslim drag queens um, because I had the time to. And I knew that I would have to exit my gay marriage because for my partner, it was he wanted to be with another gay man. Mm-hmm. I knew that I would have to come wow, out all yeah, over that's again. Massive. That's massive. I, I knew I would have to come out all over again. And because the first time was so traumatic, it was like, do I really want to do all that? Mm. So for a while, I, I was happy being gender fluid. I was happy doing my drag act and cross-dressing from time to time. Sure. And it was only in late 2016, a full year after Muslim Drag Queens, where I was invited to a global LGBT Muslim conference in South Africa which was sponsored by the South African government. Right. And I went there and I met other LGBT activists from around the world. Mm -hmm. And I met trans girls from Pakistan. And meeting them face to face and talking to them for the first time in my life, I was transported back to being that teenager Mm -hmm. in Pakistan Mm -hmm. and being that kid who saw trans people dancing at weddings and out on the streets and hearing these um, trans girl stories sorry I'm getting emotional because hearing these stories of trans girls in Pakistan not having doctors and taking hormones 
and doing it on their own terms and mm. the struggle that they face and you know in the last decade trans gender people now have rights in Pakistan in 2009 there was a bill of equality which these girls fought for and I can there's so many more like stuff that they're fighting for even now yeah. last year in 2018 there was a a specific like uh, bill that went through in Pakistani legislation that allowed transgender people to work to get national wages to you know have certain rights in yeah. law and these girls were a part of it and I got so inspired that look here I am a British Pakistani of privilege having access to healthcare, mm. having access to so many privileges and I'm not being who I am. Mm. And I remember coming back from Cape Town, getting off that flight and calling both my sister and my best friend Sergio and saying, I'm transgender, I'm going to transition. Mm -hmm. And I came back in December 2016, put in my referral to the gender clinic and privately started hormones in September 2017. Right. And it was in 2017 that I came out as trans. And, you know, it was, it was those girls that propelled me to do it. Mm -hmm. Because I had a lot on my mind. I was like, do I want to exit from my marriage? Mm -hmm. Do I want to put my drag career at jeopardy? Because right. many people still don't understand that you can be transgender and you can be a drag queen. Yeah, sure, two separate. Um, wow. But a lot of people, you know within the trans community as well, really, it challenges people. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't see that drag as an art form rather than a gender identity. Mm -hmm. And so do I want to essentially put my, my income at, at um, you know, yeah, at, at, risk. At, at risk? Do I want to go through the whole shebang of coming out to my parents? Do I want to also put my health at risk? There are health risks when taking hormones. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot more question marks than equal signs, than answers. Mm. But obviously, be going out there, talking about authenticity, talking about being yourself, I couldn't be a hypocrite. Yeah. So I came back and started that journey, came out as transgender. Um, and this was two years ago. And it's been sure. two years now that I've um, been tra in transition. Um, and I'm happy. Yeah. I mean, yes, I've had to go through a lot. I've had to go through um, a divorce. Yes, I've had to go through coming out all over again. Mm. But oddly enough, my parents and my family have been super cool about me being transgender than they have about me ever being a gay man. Because right, in the yeah. East, being trans is seen... There's visibility. It's, it's, it's definitely seen as something that's different, but it's not so different or not seen as being illegal or bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because out there, there's been visibility for years, it's been part of culture, and it's also legal. Whereas being gay, lesbian, or bisexual is illegal out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And that's not just in South Asia, in Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, or Sri Lanka, or Nepal. In East Asia, yeah. you know, being transgender... Uh, you know, you have the ladybug culture of Thailand. It's so super visible out there. Mm. And I've always said that when it comes to the trans issue, the East have, have got it for years. Mm. They've been well aware, well ahead of the issue mm. than the West. But in the West, 
we've been ahead in terms of um, LGB issues yeah. than we have of T issues. Why do you think that is? God. It's a huge question. Oh, it's a huge question. And I link it back to colonialism. Right. So transgender people, Hydra's eunuchs, were part of the Mughal Empire, were part of Indian society well before the British colonialised India. Uh-huh. And when the British came to uh, India and colonialised it, they didn't get transism. They didn't get what being transgender was. They didn't get that being transgender was part of society. They mm. didn't get why the Mughals gave transgender people such grandeur. You know, they had transgender people dancing um, within their courts, teaching their children, and these are future kings, mm. the art of, you know, poetry, of music. They didn't see that, you know, th- th- uh, there was um, an art form there. They didn't see it was part of society. You know, the Mughal kings would allow transgender people within the courts of their wives. It was seen as something to aspire to if you yeah. were transgender back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the British came, they didn't quite get it, and they put Section 377 in place, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was, you know, the penal codes of... They saw it as being homosexual. Mm-hmm. And they they criminalised homosexuality mm-hmm. within British India. And then once the British left and partition happened and Pakistan was made and India was made, yeah, yeah. Um, these penal codes were still kept. Mm. And because for, cent- for decades and centuries, under British rule, it was seen as illegal, it carried on. And um, it was, you know, yeah. it's interesting we're talking about 377 because India just last year decriminalised it. Right. Uh-huh. You know, and it's been an interesting decade because in 2009, India decriminalised it then recriminalised it in 2013, and now, last year, decriminalised it again. So, it's, it's, it's historical. It's not just a cultural thing, because if we look back in history, actually, transgenderism has been there for years. Yeah. Um, and in certain parts of Africa, too, it's been there. And um, So, it, it's very much intertwined in history, where the issue... It's interesting now how in British society in the West, it's now fine to be gay, but back then it wasn't. But, you know, they struggle, you know, we struggle as a British community, as a British society with transgenderism. Mm. And at that time we struggled then, so we criminalised it yeah, yeah, yeah. as a colony. So it's, it's, it's a big issue. It's a huge issue. So for you going into, so now um, when you go to, to the mosque, you, how how are you how are you treated? You go in as a as a trans woman. How 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 does that work? So for two years while I was in transition, I didn't go. Right. Because I wasn't quite male. I wasn't quite female. I was transitioning. Mm. My boobs were blossoming. Mm. My facial hair was going. My hair was growing. I was you know my face was effeminizing. Sure. But it got to a point where at the it was sort of summer last year. I just, I missed it. I missed, although I love, for me, being Muslim is very cultural. It's very much part of my Asian upbringing. It's very cultural. I, you know, go to the mosque maybe once a week. Um, I follow the five pillars of prayer. 
I don't pray five times a day. Again, once a week at the mosque is sure. fine for me. Um, I fast during Ramadan. I believe in one God. Um, and this is a God that, you know, people see Allah as like a separate God. Allah is just God. We, we you know, it's the same God that Christians believe in, that mm-hmm. Jewish people believe in. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I believe in giving to charity. I give to charity. I give, you know, my time as well as my finances to charity. Mm. And I also, you know, one of the last, the last pillar is pilgrimage. And I've, I've been to Mecca. So, which was years ago right, uh, with okay. my mum, well after coming out as gay. Okay. And, um, you know, that's my, that's my connection with Islam. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very cultural. It's very intertwined with my Asian-ness. And, for those people that say you can't be Muslim, you need to leave Islam. Well, for me, it's much bigger than that. Because if I leave Islam, I have to leave my parents. I have to leave my family uphold. Yeah. I have to leave my family surroundings, my Asian community surroundings. Mm. And actually, my family is accepting of me. Mm. And, you know, going to the mosque... I remember just going willy-nilly. I was like, okay, I want to go and pray. Yeah. And I went, and I went without a headscarf. And the moment I entered the mosque, this was Central London Regent's Park Mosque. Right. Um, I was stopped at the gates by the security guard. And I was like, oh my gosh, here we go. They're going to kick me out. But the security guards gave me and brought me a headscarf. And then they said, here you go, madam, put this on. And the female quarters are that way. And I was like, oh, Okay. They obviously think I'm cisgendered female. So I put on my headscarf, I went in and I prayed mm. with the fe- uh, with the women. Mm. And Matt, I'm telling you, it was the best prayer session of my life because I was right. praying I as I myself yeah. amongst females. Yeah. And I just thanked God and I said, thank you so much for this journey. Thank you for this journey of acceptance. Mm. My link with God has always been personal. It's always been towards me. Um, you know, as a person of faith, I believe that our connections are always individual with, with God, you know, as Muslims and as people of faith from the Abrahamic religions, mm-hmm. all Abrahamic faiths believe that you're judged at the end of your life and actually only God can judge you. Mm-hmm. So your, your, your connection is very individual with God. Why should you be judged by people here that yeah. are super hip- hypocritical? Sure. So I, it was, you know, it was the best, it was the best prayer session of, of my life. And, um, I went and, you know, I continuously pray. I mean, my lo- I live in Croydon, so my local mosque is Croydon and I go there to pray as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my connection with Islam is very personal. Yeah. Um, since coming out as transgender, you know, my family has been accepting of it because of the visibility aspects. Uh, it's visible in Asian culture, you know, now in, in, you know, we have laws now in Pakistan. And when I went back last year, I, I went back to Pakistan, uh, to my mom's home city of, mm. of, of Karachi. Right. And I met that cousin that I was meant to marry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she's now married. She's got like three kids. And I remember playing with her as a child and stuff. And I felt so accepted by my mum's family um and there were parts I had, I had some questions answered like they were like you know what why did this why did you what made you transition and I said to them was I ever a guy 
And a lot of them were like, no, you weren't. We remember right. you dancing and you were always super effeminate. And, um, you know, out on the streets in Pakistan, people just assume that I'm cisgendered. And a lot of that comes with, you know, I have a privilege. I, have, I had passing privilege within the, within, you know, it's called passing privilege yeah. in the trans community. Yeah. And I, you know, I haven't had any surgery till now. I Do you had... want to actually just very briefly give a description? Because, I mean, I understand passing privilege, but to anyone who's listening, because people listen all over the world, just to give a brief explanation of how you would explain passing privilege. Sure. So passing privilege is a person who transitions, who appears or looks cisgender. So you would, by looking at them, you wouldn't assume that they're transgender. Yeah. Because they look like or appear or give the illusion that they are born in the female that they are they they are born in the gender that they are presenting. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Just because. Yeah. To give it. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> although real. although I was born male, and I have transitioned to female, I actually look like I was I am born female. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, talking to my cousin who I was meant to marry, she's happy now. She's happy, she's mm-hmm. in a marriage where, you know, she's loved. And had I married her, and we had this discussion, I had this discussion with her, she would not have been that happy. She would not have been yeah, happy of at course. all. And it would not have ended happily. Um, Amazing that she can now, yeah. with, from her world and your world... And I went to attend a cousin's wedding, and I was, I was taken with open arms by my aunt's... Um, and I talked very openly with my aunt about who I was and how for many years I was scared of coming back because I wouldn't know how they would take it. And um, I was amazed at the youngsters. So all the youngsters under the age of 30 were super cool with it. Yeah, yeah. I was very much like the selfie queen, <laughs> not only because of my career, obviously, everyone knows about my career worldwide, including my family. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know... I had many marriage proposals. <laughs> they were like, marry me and, you know, many guys and stuff. And, um, but, you know, I was, I was accepted full-heartedly. Yeah. Um, my, my dad's side of the family is a bit more conservative and I'm not sure how they would take it. Sure. But, um, and they live in Lahore in, in, in my dad is from Lahore. So, yeah, I've got to go. I go back there and I, I continue to go back there. But there are some sections of the family that are that aren't quite with it. Slowly but surely. Yeah, slowly but surely. With time. With time. <laughs> the world is changing. It is. It's just about um, causing change. Um, and it needs people like you to keep talking and doing what you're doing and just being honest and be and and I mean for for years you've done it. It's yeah. just amazing that you Yeah. And you seem super you seem super happy. I am. I you mean, you know, my, my drag career is still continuing. Um, uh, I am very happy with who I am. Uh, it's the best, you know, decision that I made to transition yeah. when I did. Um, and life is good, you know, life is really, really good uh, because I'm happy in the gender I am. I'm happy that I'm still performing. You know, my drag is my art form, um, which I love. And I'm continuing to just aspire and be the best trans woman I can be and be the best 
drag queen that I can be. Yeah. And I'm loving life. Which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, before we sign up and I let you get on with your day, just a couple of fun things. First of all, would you do, would you go back and try and enter Eurovision again? Because <gasps> that was a moment in life. Very briefly, because oh, I God. Let so lunch, I, I, I entered Eurovision very publicly in 2015 and I didn't get chosen for either um, the UK or for... Uh, I applied within Moldova as well, an Eastern European country, oh, I and I didn't get chosen for either. Right. Um, but I was very public and I still am very public about Eurovision. I love Eurovision and I would love to do it. And actually, I've been applying every year since. Oh, good. So, yes, so. you know, there's a, there's a public uh, submission route, and I've been applying every year since. I don't think I'll ever stop applying for Eurovision, uh, simply because I love it. Yeah. Um, and I think I go back to my first inspiration of Dana International. Yeah. Um, and uh, seeing her, and, you know, she is my role model, and I would love to do Eurovision. And, you know, since then, so many drag... I mean, Conchita, Conchita won yeah. it in 2014. Courtney Act tried to represent Australia this year, didn't make it, but, you know, it's great that so many different communities are trying mm. to to um, do it. I mean, I really wanted to... And I did, I tried hard to represent this year uh, because it's being held in Israel, yeah, which is contentious at the best of times and having Eurovision there is going to be amazing but I just thought of British Britain's first out Muslim drag queen representing UK in Israel would just send an amazing message to the world absolutely Um, it didn't happen however France are sending Bilal who is a British uh, sorry a Muslim French non-binary person and Uh, um Italy are sending Mahmoud, who is a Italian Egyptian uh, gay man, uh, and both songs, you know, are about the LGBT and immigrant experience. So yeah. I'm not the first person to have that right, idea. Right, sure. Um, but I'm just glad that more and more intersectionality is being out there in the world. And what I'll say is. Will this podcast be out before Eurovision in May? So, you know, a lot of people listen to this podcast before Eurovision. But look out for the Italian entry and look out for the French entry because there's going to be a lot of PR. (laughs) And the Italian guy is fit. There we go. That's what we really need to know. Who's the hottest? Oh, he's hot. And then finally... This is the question I ask everybody. It's a bit of a difficult one, but if you had to name... One album that stuck with you for life. One band, one artist, one album that you still go back to time and time again. Okay, I'm not ashamed to say this, but for me, it's the Spice Girls debut album, Spice, 1996. I still have it on cassette. Uh, I've obviously upgraded and I've got it on on iTunes now. But it's just one album that I go back to because it just reminds me of... Um, my formulative years. It reminds me of happy times. Um, I, I would listen to it during my bullying because it would get me through my bullying. And it just reminds me of the late 90s, a time where everyone was happy. You know, I that time, 96 to 2000, was the time that I found myself. And that album just brings back so much memories for me um, about finding myself 
being intertwined in the girl power movement um, and just good times of cool Britannia you know images of Jerry Halliwell wearing that Union Jack <laughs> dress at the Brit Awards and just yes. and that was the time when the Brit Awards wasn't seen as a cool international event yeah. you know we all had fun we all if you look back at the presenters everyone was drunk yes yeah, and Fox. you know oh god yeah and <laughs> you know it's it's an album that reminds me of such good times and such good memories of of being British and and being yourself fabulous thank you and where does everybody find you? Social medias. So you can catch me on social media at Asifa Lahore. Perfect. Everywhere. Thank you so much. And we'll, we'll stay in touch from there. We'll be back for a little bit more. We have a bit of a round table with a few guests. Oh, definitely. I'd love to, Matt. Thank you Fabulous. for having me. Thank you, Asifa.